When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. I'm, gu- I'm guessing all of us have passed. <laughs> I know I do. Uh, I, I'm not really sure where you're going with this, Stephen. What, uh, what do you want to get off your chest? Not a thing. It sounds like you do. Talk to Baco. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Baco. Uh, no, I said talk, talk to Baco. Well, yeah, why not? Talk to Dr. Baco. Anyway. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's got a better ring to it. things in georgia good man we're fixing to get clobbered with some rain mm. well I, I suppose it's time to kind of get the show going here Stephen michael from the uh rock talk with Stephen michael is that what it's called did i get that right <laughs> yeah not even close there uh, brother growing up rock of course uh my, my good friend and uh oh occasional punching bag for me uh steven michael all around good guy uh thanks for coming on man thanks for having me there baco yeah welcome to whatever never mind uh you uh you picked this one this is not one like i kind of farmed out what is uh what, what was it about core that made you kind of want to gravitate towards this one is it the only record on the list you like <laughs> no, there's there's quite a few records okay. on the list I like, but I'll be honest with you, Core was one of those records for me that kind of helped bridge the gap between my 80s hard rock and 90s grunge. I, I don't necessarily even consider this a grunge record, but uh, it's on the list, so it's good, and I'm good to talk about it. Yeah, we, we talk about that, um, I don't know, periodically on this show. What there's other records that people have said, well, I don't really think that's grunge, that kind of thing. I'm more accepting of the kind of broad umbrella considering the time. It might have a lot to do with the fact that, you know, um, I was kind of living it as it happened, basically from uh, Nevermind on, 
grunge kind of became my next thing, and I kind of turned my uh, back on a lot of stuff that I grew up with, you know, in high school and that kind of stuff, at least for a while, while I focused on this. It's probably a better way to put it. But so for me, yeah, I, I see things like this, even like when it kind of brought it into more just alternative bands even like i'll just i always say belly for whatever reason maybe it's because tanya donnelly was was did it for me back in the day but uh they uh bands like that Lemonheads, you know they really aren't necessarily grungy but to me they kind of would fall under that umbrella because of like grunge kind of pulled in alternative music in general and that kind of ethos of of the creativity is similar but anyway i get why people say that about this record but they're wrong yeah, I, I agree with uh, what you're saying in terms of the alternative being pulled in. It was the it was the the '90s, the early '90s, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are bands that encompass that time frame that are fall under the grunge umbrella, but aren't even close to uh, grunge. And uh, Lemonheads is a perfect example of that. You're right. Yeah, and, and, hey, and- I, I'm sorry. Hey, are we gonna have our fight about? Uh, uh, whether grunge cared, uh, killed hair metal or not? Every guest gets to answer that question, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's like, I, hopefully I, I give you a little more space than Chris Sins, I did Chris Sinzak. I don't know if you heard the facelift episode, but I got to the certain point, it's like, why the hell am I even talking? This is your time. You know, it's <laughs> Sometimes you, you just get caught up in the conversation is all. It's all fun. Those are the best cons. But yeah, absolutely. You're definitely going to get a chance to... Uh, I, I'm guess I'm gonna guess by the tenor of you phrasing that that you're just gonna be totally wrong about it. But uh, however you come at it, it's all it's all good fun. Um, it, but let, let let's get into it. Coming at number eleven on Rolling Stone's greatest grunge albums list is the debut record from Stone Temple Pilots, Core. By this point, grunge was pretty much the hot new chick that everybody was wanted a piece of. So uh, it was kind of a, a really good time for a record like this to come out. And the album's title was apparently a reference to the apple from the Garden of Eden. I just found that out today. Did you know that uh, beforehand? No, I found it out at the same time you did. <laughs> We're probably on the same <laughs> Wikipedia page. Uh, yeah, well, that that kind of makes the album cover make sense, too. You know, it's got yep. a woman handing, I guess it could be an apple. I'm not really sure I ever nope, pulled that together, but... Uh, uh, so yeah, it was released on September 29th, 1992 through Atlantic Records. The album peaked at number one on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart, whatever that means, and number three on the real chart, the Billboard 200. And I was a little surprised at this number. I knew it did well, but eight times platinum, that's pretty legit, man. And it is, of course, the band's best-selling record, produced by Brendan O'Brien. And if you don't mind, I'd like to get into a little bit about how its initial reception. Is that okay with you, Stephen? Absolutely. Go for it. All right. Well, this, as you probably recall, especially if you liked it at the time, it was not really embraced out of the gate. A lot of people, uh, as, as well as it did, it just especially critically, it wasn't. But there's a few reviews that I'd like to get into. Entertainment Weekly, a woman named Deborah Frost wrote this. Stone Temple Pilots' hit sex-type thing could be Mike Tyson's rape defense transcribed into grunge rock. It's unclear whether STP sounds like it has crash-landed Pearl Jam into Alice in Chains, is condemning or identifying with its narrator. With a real point of view, this band could be bigger than an accident. I one Look, I don't care that anybody takes some cheap shots at bands. I do it all the time. But to me, this is pretty lazy and stupid. And we'll get into it when we talk into the song. But if you can't wrap your head around the idea that of somebody writing lyrics from the perspective of the antagonist, you really aren't qualified to do a music review. What do you think? Uh, I tend to agree with you. But I have to say there's one thing that she said there that sort of 
isn't far off, and that was crash landing, what'd she say, Alice in Chains into what now? Pearl Jam. Into Pearl Jam. That's not that far off. No, there was uh, a lot of, um, you know, and I, I, if, if you get into kind of the broader thing, like I even thought this, like this seemed very... Oh, contrived. Like, it really was. There's, you know, like, the plush really sounds like he's trying to do his best Eddie Vedder. Sex type thing would probably be in that Alice in Chains Soundgarden kind of vein. Uh, she says some things in there I agree with. It's just, I, I didn't find out until somewhat recently that there was actually some debate over which side of the uh, rape <laughs> uh, argument this, that song was. So, uh, but, but moving on, because we'll get into that. Uh, Paul Evans of Rolling Stone uh, uh, said that inner child of Stone Temple Pilots is Iron Maiden and that kid just won't quit howling, which tells me he has never heard Iron Maiden. I'm all for the cheap shot again, like I said, but it has to make sense. I don't understand what Iron Maiden or the inner child that, that, that he's trying to like. I don't, just, do you follow that at all? I didn't follow the ma- I saw that uh, same quote and I didn't follow the Maiden not one bit like I didn't get that. I don't think he was actually saying that they sound like Maiden. Sure, I didn't either. But, but I don't. I don't even get it as a clever reference. Is what I'm getting at. It's just like, it's like this is what happens when your kid listens to Iron Maiden and goes to college and then writes music. I, I don't get that. You know, it's like when you say when you make an axe body spray metaphor about a Breaking Benjamin concert, it makes sense. But, you know, uh, anyway, uh, one last one here from The Village Voice, a name that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, At least he's a famous music writer, Robert Christigo. The band is hard to distinguish from various other hard rock acts and said that despite the best power chords, sex type thing shows they should reconceive their aesthetic strategy critique-wise. Irony has no teeth when the will to sexual power still powers your power chords. This hits on a pet peeve of mine. Um, if you don't know the difference between a riff or a chord progression and, or between uh, drop D two, a drop D riff or the use of a power chord, you shouldn't use those terms. They do actually mean things. They always have. And frankly, they really are meant for more guitar-centric reviews, like a Guitar World review. You know what I mean? It's just a way for Robert Christigo to sound like he knows what he's talking about. But if anybody actually takes time to pay attention, it's like, you've never picked up a guitar in your life, you fucking knucklehead. Hey, hold on, Baco. I need to make a bunch of adjustments to my notes now so that you don't (laughs) uh, call me... Drop D tuning doesn't mean <laughs> low. Uh, what was the guitar thing? Guitar. Oh, God. I, yeah, I'm just kidding. I use a lot of those terms, but uh, I picked up a guitar before. I'm just not very good at playing it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I knew you had played guitar before. I thought you might be more of a rallier for me on this one. It's like, absolutely, Baco. You are totally right. You don't know what no, a fucking... You... Not every chord in a hard rock band is a power chord. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 100%. There we go. And that, and, and fucking hitting one note, dun, 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 that's not a fucking riff. Okay? It, it's, not, it's not wrong. It's not illegal. It might be cool, but it's not a riff. Neither is an open G chord. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Um, how's Poonie doing tonight? <laughs> Poonie, I'm sure, is doing just fine. Who knows where he's at? He's probably on another podcast at this very moment. Well, for me, out of the gate, when I first heard this, uh, I did find them somewhat contrived. They, they, 
from the name to Wyland's lyrics, everything kind of screamed prepackaged grunge to me, especially with the timing of it, you know, um, which is really works in direct opposition of, of the core belief system that kind of created grunge. Um, but you sound like maybe you jumped on a little quicker than I did. Uh, what, what did you think when the, the, this album first came out? Yeah, I loved it from the get-go. I'm going to be honest with you, Baco. You and I, I mean, I'm just much easier to please. I, I don't uh, drill down. on standards are lower, yes. My standards are much, much lower. And the bottom line for me is, uh, and I don't pay attention, I don't pay a whole bunch of attention at first to lyrics. Hmm. As long as I can get into the guitar as long as there's a nice pocket or groove going on and as long as I can understand somewhat of what the singer is singing and he has a reasonable voice, I'm okay. You know, melody is important to me. That kind of thing is important. And when I heard, because the first thing I heard obviously was sex type thing. That was the first thing that came off this record I was in from the get-go. The song reminded me of something, and we'll go into that a little <laughs> bit later, but uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I was, I was in from the get-go. And, and in fact, I saw this band three months after this record was released. I saw them in a club. There were probably, it was a club that holds 1,000 people, and there were probably maybe 500 people there. Okay. Uh, it was in December. It was like a fairly cold night, and I'd gotten hammered at a friend's house. And so I went to the club a little bit tipsy, but was ready to have a good time. I'd heard this record, so I was excited to see it. And they were great. I mean, they were fantastic. I remember having literally a 15-second conversation with Dean DeLeo at some point backstage. And I just remember telling him something to the effect of, that song, Plush, is going to be a hit, man. That's a great song. You guys should release that as a single. And not, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the reason this happened. All I'm saying is that uh, it's probably the foresight of a lot of people that that song was going to be a hit. Check. Oh, something. There we go. I had some kind of loose connection on my end, which was all right because you were talking. All right. So you backstage, you were blowing uh, roadies that far back, huh? I thought that was kind of a new thing for you. No, no, I stay away from that, man. Can't do it. Can't do it. Not even for Van Halen. <laughs> oh, man. How many dicks you got to suck to see Stone Temple Pilots at a show that's not sold out? Uh, Three months into their career, not much. Yeah, you wouldn't think so, yeah. You would actually think like maybe a, like a couple joints would do it, but uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, the album opens up with "Dead and Bloated."
I love the riff in this song when it kicks in, especially because, you know, it's got that kind of mono sound with that megaphone at the beginning. And so when the full uh, band kicks in in stereo, just it has an impact. You can kind of feel it in your chest. Okay. Uh, So I absolutely love that riff. I love the hook. This song and one other one on the album is what I'm trying to say here is kind of a go-to track off this record for Meathead fans. This is one that's like... You know, the dumbest guy you know that likes this record is going to go, fuck yeah, when this song comes on. I'm not saying it's a bad song, but that always kind of like, it tainted it for me a little bit. It's like, it was almost like you're ruining it for me because if you like this and I like that, what the fuck does it say about me? You know what I mean? It's just like, how can we (laughs) have any common ground at all? Um, It, again... Going back and listening to it, 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 it probably sounds more co- cliche now than it did when I really got into it. Uh, I do think it's a good song, though. What um, what is our rating system? Are we are we going to have one for the whole show? Or yeah, why not? And I think we should go with um, a, a, a single Doc Martin boot, not a pair of boots, mm. but a single Doc Martin boot. How many single Doc Martin boots did you give uh, of Dead and Bloated? I gave it four, and I think that you just said that I was the dumbest guy you know. Fuck you, Baco. <laughs> oh, you're far from it. I mean, you're you're not at the top, but you know neither am I. Um, <laughs> uh, you're you're you and me. We're floaters. Okay, you know we're, we're even Steven. You're even Steven. There you go. I too gave it four uh, single Doc Martins. So um, maybe we're both the dumbest guy I know. I don't know. I mean. We both apparently said "fuck yeah" when it came on. Yeah, I I do enjoy the song. I just there's always that there's one other track I'll mention it to when we get it to, uh, and I like both of the songs, but it just it it's just ruined by that jackass kind of the same kind of guy that gets excited about you know Wang Dang Sweet Poon Tang on the jukebox. You know, it's just like calls Nirvana Nirvana. You know, just uh, that that kind of stuff. Frat boy rock. Growing up in southern Minnesota, it was more kind of the meathead kind of guy who uh, liked to drink too much and drive home, that kind of stuff. So uh, anyway, not that I was, it probably shouldn't be too judgy there. Uh, I, I will tell you this. I got a couple uh, quotes from some of the members of the band on this. Uh, Eric Kretz, the drummer, said he remembers Scott and I were at a Mexican restaurant on Beverly and they had dollar margaritas. Ooh, maybe it was a Chili's. Uh, we had a plate of enchiladas, and he's like, hey, man, I came up with this idea. And he, that's my Scott Weiland impersonation. He starts singing, I am smelling like a rose. And he's like, he was just so excited. We sat there at the table and pounding on it. And uh, Dean DeLeo said this, I have to be careful with what I say about Scott's lyrics because I don't know how much... Scott would really want people to know about what he was writing about. That guy kept his cards pretty close to his chest, which I only put in here because I thought that was kind of interesting. These these comments came posthumously, obviously. And uh, I really wonder where, where, where he was going with that because, I don't know, to me the, the dead and bloated kind of – it's it's a bit of almost like emotional lethargy when I listen to the and I break down the lyrics. It's almost like maybe a breakup or something, something bad happened to him where it's just kind of like not not feeling right, man. Hmm. Interesting take on it. Like I said, you look further into it lyrically than I do. I've never been a lyric person. I did go back and read some of these lyrics just out of context, so I would understand what you were referring to. But yeah, we'll get to uh, track two here. Sex type thing.
This is also known as War Machine by Kiss. Is that where you were going just a minute ago? I don't think so, but maybe. I mean, definitely when I heard it, it was just something that reminded me of something. And to be honest, I can't place it. I don't know which song it is. Oh, really? Maybe then you it, need to go listen to War Machine at the beginning and listen to this. It's uh, there's there's a couple subtle changes, but it, uh, it's it's the same notes. surprising to find out even bj cramp when i was on his show talking about wyland brought up that he was still even wasn't sure if it was pro-rape or anti-rape and i'm like i i think that's just kind of fucking ridiculous i mean i thought it at the time and i believe it is only it's only strengthened with me this was not like in support of the attitude of the person it was totally mocking it talking about almost like that meathead i was talking about I don't I don't think it's confusing at all. I just think this is clearly a a song kind of taking shot of that macho misogynistic kind of culture um and and kind of da- dialing it back from there. Um plus it uh it went perfect with Scott's I don't know rubber man dance or whatever you want to call that thing he kind of did, you know, but uh what do you got here, Steven? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting about songs and lyrics. You know, I think people will read into a song whatever they want. That's why people interpret so many different songs different ways. I agree with you. I agree with what you read uh, in Wikipedia as far as what this song is about. Uh, it's not complicated to me either. Well, Wikipedia uh, puts it in question. I'm just saying I've had uh, I, I, to a record review, uh, seeing the members of the band commented uh, in researching this in, in, in some interviews, and then also B.J. Cramp even bringing it up uh, fairly recently. I didn't think it was even up for debate. I thought it was Wikipedia that I read the quote from Scott Weiland uh, saying what this song was about. Oh, maybe. I didn't uh, break down the whole of Wikipedia articles, mainly facts. But anyway, that's so I agree with that. I will say that first impressions are everything. And this song was the first impression. This song sucked me in. And maybe it is War Machine that I'm trying to place and, and couldn't think of it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I love this song, man. I absolutely love this song. Uh, uh, the guitarist Dean DeLeo would claim it was inspired by a Led Zeppelin song. In the light, but that's probably because it sounds cooler to, to cite a Led Zeppelin song as an influence than to admit you ripped off a whole Kiss song. So, uh, have you li- have you listened to In the Light uh, with this song in mind? Uh, no, actually, I, I I couldn't even place that one. I, I don't go very deep, but definitely not into uh, which record is that on Presence? Excuse me. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know it either. I know um, the song. I just can't place it. It sounds like I'm being critical of it. I think this is a fucking masterful song. I may not have liked it the very first time I heard it, but I, I kind of came around in Stone Temple Pilots at a certain point, if that wasn't already clear. Uh, I gave this five single Doc Martin boots. That has five single Doc Martin boots from me as well. Up next is Wicked Garden. <laughs> So Wicked Garden. Uh, 
I like the different textures over some of the layered guitars in this song. Good point. That's the first thing that hits me. The driving riff is yeah. awesome. And this song for me has four Doc Martin boots. Wow, that's a that's a pretty quick wrap up there. Uh, finally, a vagina reference too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Although for grunge, that might be the the, the quickest uh, um, vagina reference on an album, right? Three songs in. Uh, and what's the vagina reference? The Wicked Garden, baby. I want to go dance in the Wicked Garden. <laughs> okay, the title. All right, fair enough. Uh, you really, you know, for a guy who likes Pink Cream '69, you really need to be beat over the head uh, with, with some sexual references here, man. Nice one. I just found out the other day that Striper was Christian rock. Oh, he was come talking on. about God. You're foolish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know what? You, you, the, the great thing about you is you, you sell it. I can see your face, and I'm like, come on, Steven. That's just re- oh, okay. You're fucking with me. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, I gave this uh, four and a half single Doc Martens, man. This is um. Well, it was the third single off the record, and it was probably around the time that, that this started getting uh, played too much that I started to kind of reconsider my overall judgment of the band, and, and it was probably had to be somewhere near that period that I actually picked up the CD and, and started digesting it uh, from beginning to end. So far, we both have a damn near the same ratings going through here. I think I'm a half point higher than you. Um, up next, though, no memory. I'm just going to say this right now. I gave it a zero. I don't even think it's necessary. Uh, and even the drummer, Eric Kretz, when asked about this on a track-by-track, track, says he had no memory of it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, <laughs> get the joke? No memory? <laughs> yeah, I got it. Uh, what do this you think so- here? I read in an article that I think Dean DeLeo said that they were going to put this record together as a complete package and they wanted it to all tie together so this was the first instrumental on a record and part of tying together wicket garden and sin yeah i mean that's basically what it does i mean it, let's be honest here it's a minute and a half of music kind of tightening two songs just in case the listeners haven't heard it i didn't know i could give it a zero Doc Martin boot, so I gave it a one Doc Martin boot. Fair but enough. But I think it's a minute and twenty of <laughs> wasted space. Me personally. You know what? If you're just gonna play the record beginning to end, it's harmless. But if I'm asked to kind of pick it apart and give an opinion on it, it's just not gonna be that good. So um I hate and maybe this is a good time to tell you, uh as a guest host. You can do whatever you want with the ratings. You can give it a hundred Doc Martins. I really don't. This is not like uh, we're not keeping score, like uh, and going to tally this up here at the end. So do whatever the hell you want. Is all I'm saying, man. That's all good. Uh, one through five keeps me straight, and this one gets a one. If you're going to put an instrumental on a record, it better be damn groundbreaking or pretty damn cool. That's or, all I'm or saying. Or short, it does that for me. At least it should. If they kept this under forty-five seconds, I don't think I'd even be talking about it. A minute and twenty. It's too long. (laughs) All right. The next song, Sin. The first thing, my first comments are, this song's too long, 605. Mm, Uh, I said I like the riff in it, but not a fan of the breakdown and a little too boring to me. It's definitely not necessarily a skipper for me. It's just 
put it this way. The first three songs, Dead and Bloated, Sex Type Thing, and Wicked Garden, are so freaking strong. Yeah. And, you know, take out the stupid instrumental. And then you go into Sin, and it's kind of a, le- a drop-off for me, personally. Uh, so I ended up giving this one three Doc Martin boots. I found it as forgettable as the as the song No Memory. Uh, both of those are the only two tracks. Like it's been a while since I, I put the CD in. So by when I was looking down the titles, those are the only two things that I just couldn't remember off the top of my head how they went. So it, it, this didn't really do a whole lot for me. And it probably sounds a lot more familiar to fans of Stone Temple Pilot because it uses the exact same chord at the beginning of Tripping on a Hole in Paper Heart and the beginning of of Meat Plow. Two songs that I like much better than the... Uh, this pile of shit. I gave it two and a half single Doc Martens, and that was probably being generous. I I, lo- I love the two songs off of Purple. Yeah, those are great songs. Eve. Naked Sunday comes up next. kind of shows you kind of what the beauty you can create with the simplicity of like two chords you don't need a lot of music they're just played or attacked differently throughout the song but it is only two chords and i and i think if they if they would have gone for a more traditional chorus instead of that you know kind of ah they might have had to dig up an extra chord or two but it can be challenging though as a songwriter to like write a song and it's only got two chords and you go i can't just use two chords, can I? And then um, Blake Shelton calls you up and says, "Yes, you can." Shoot him back, shoot him back, shoot him back, a spin. Um, but uh, no, seriously though, it is. I, I've written songs where it's just like I need something else, but then then you you start to realize that you don't. But the fact that they did it that way too, it also kind of opens up his brother uh, to play bass. What uh, was uh, Robert DeLeo, right? Uh, we haven't really talked too much on the musicianship at this point, but but Robert's a phenomenal bass player, and he just this is this song. The, the fact that you have a very simple kind of AB kind of guitar, guitar chord pattern, uh, not a riff, but uh, a couple power chords thrown in there. He gets to kind of adventure and, and kind of showcase here a little bit. I like it a lot. Um, and I, and Dean Dean's lead playing is kind of unique as, as, as a player, and that's a big part of the, the, the overall sound of this band. But this song really comes down to the melody fit in the song, and it's a brilliant bullhorn song for Scott. <laughs> you know, let's talk a little bit about the music musicianship of this band i think the three uh musicians in this band uh really are 
very, very solid. They're very unassuming musicians, meaning that they're quietly very good at what they do, all three of them, the drummer, the guitar player, and the bass player. They just, they have a very solid bass to their music, and maybe that's one of the reasons it's uh, successful. I don't know, but you just don't hear many people talk about them in that way, you know? Probably because none of them are like that uh, virtuoso kind of level kind of player. But they, yeah, I honestly, I, I 100% agree. If anything, and this is not a shot, this is more of a, a credit to the rhythm section. I think as far as at their instrument, I would I would put Dean as the lowest as, as far as just his personal craft, and I think he's he he kind of approaches the guitar. It's it's different, but it's the same kind of approach as 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 oh that knucklehead from U two. What's he go by the Edge? Where it's it's more about shaping sound and kind of stuff like that. And again, I I was not criticizing his playing. I think he's a phenomenal player, but it, to me, his playing is more suited for songwriting, which is perfect for what this man needs. Uh, but yeah, the, the drummer man, he is. He is out of this world. He is, uh, and and he knows how to fit the song too. You know what I mean? He, but without being boring, you know. Yeah, agreed. They don't seem, and none of them seem to overplay. Yeah, uh, and that's not to say that they can't. It just they play to fit the song. Exactly what you said. And it's because of that none of these guys were considered for a role in the Winery Dog. <laughs> that's correct. They were not looked at in any way, shape, or form. Well, Scott Weiland said the, the lyrics to, to this are about organized religion and, and, and about people telling others what to do and what to believe. Uh, and and I agree with this statement that religion does switch people's minds off and it helps to control masses i don't typically get terribly oh i don't know openly critical about religion although that's not true (laughs) i should change that (laughs) i just relate to that message is all i'm getting at i i definitely feel that way that i think faith can be a really strong thing and it can be a very good guide in in not only how how people grow as individuals but also to kind of like just something to lean on at times when you need it but too often i i've just personally experienced where it's just it's just a way to like manipulate people and you know we see it in in every day of life it's it's really that's why everybody says don't talk about religion and politics because they're really just both about you know kind of getting people to follow the herd in a certain sense and you can't say wyland was that kind of guy at all no matter what you think of him he was definitely a uh he was a square peg in a round hole. I think that your new icon should be a picture of you with a big pot and a big spoon. <laughs> you think I'm a pot stirrer, you son of a bitch? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I Not definitely can be, that's for sure. All right, so my... Are you done Oh, yeah, wait, the, what about our ratings? Yeah, I mean, I gave this four single Doc Martens. Yeah, so my impression of this song, I I wrote funky, jazzy, and frantic. Uh, And it just didn't didn't hit home for me with this song. Uh, So I gave this one to Doc Martin boot. Steve Martin officially needs three chords. He has a three-chord minimum on his music, so. That's right. All right. Well, that wrapped up side one. Uh, Mr. Michael. It's weird that you have two first names, like a lot of serial killers. I think I've mentioned to you that to you before. Brett Michael was my uh, daddy. Hmm. And we all know uh, <laughs> anybody that watched the uh, the film that I made with my friends in uh, Jesus Chrysler, he is uh, a notorious killer. Uh, and also a ghost <laughs> and a zombie somehow. Um, uh, check out my Facebook feed if you want to see that. Uh <laughs> 
back in 1991, uh, Nirvana Nevermind, it was a pretty quick hit. It, it, it was not a slow grower, I, in my recollection. Smells like teen spirit. Kind of changed the landscape. We probably didn't realize it right away. Within six months, it was pretty clear. Where were you? What, like, what were you listening to musically leading up to Nirvana Nevermind? Skid Row, Van Halen still. Yeah. Um, shoot, what else came out then? I think uh, Pantera was out in 90, so that one, Lynch Mob, out in 90, so I was listening to a lot of that stuff. Okay. Uh, now, then, uh, we're, did, when, when Nevermind did break, was it clear that something was changing to you? Uh, or did you just feel this was just this new band? I just felt like it was a new band. I mean, if you were there in the time, I think it's easy to look back on it now and say hindsight 2020, but, uh, trying to capture my headspace in 1991, I, there's no way you could have seen that the musical sure. tides were changing. Uh, so I think that that's a falsity, uh, to anybody that says that. Well, I, I think it was clear pretty quick, but I don't think it was clear the the the, the moment that that song became a hit. I think it was still no. a few months, but it was a pretty fast change. It uh, and it turns out, you know, I've I've learned actually through uh, going through all this, a lot of things that were pointed out that kind of really kind of showed that people that were even more immersed in the scene saw it as more of a slow burn. You know what I mean? Uh, right. than, than someone like you or myself. But, uh, well, then what about afterwards? So grunge breaks. It's now clear that everybody wants to wear flannel. Uh, um, watch Eddie Vedder stare at the floor while he gives an interview. Uh, did you did you shift with it? Did you kind of revolt against it? Uh, what did it take for you to kind of uh, get into it a little bit? No, I think it would be the cool thing to say, oh, fuck that, I didn't shift with it, but I did. The truth of the matter is, is that a lot of the uh, clubs I was hanging out uh, around town, I was also on the road at the time in the early to mid-90s. Blowing roadies? uh, Tour manager, yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) so... I mean, I I would say that I wore flannel, I had boots, uh, and so did a lot of other people. So, yeah, I mean, I was involved with it as much as the next person. Wow. Yeah, I I I like the way you said that, though, because I think it it would be kind of cool in hindsight to kind of act like you dismissed it, 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 unless you did. But, yeah, I I went all in. Uh, It didn't take too long before I was all about Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden. Um, Nirvana never clicked with me, but uh, that's a different story. Um, well, how do you view grunge now? I mean, cause it, it, it was a quick hit. I mean, honestly, we look back now, we're talking really about four years and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I look at it as just another part of rock and roll. I mean, you listen to some of those records and some of those riffs. I like a lot of it. I don't like a lot of it. And, you know, for me, it was just a different form of hard rock and metal. I never quit listening to the stuff like Lynch Mob, Van Halen, etc. But I also didn't turn away Rusty Cage or Outshine or, uh, you know, Rooster or Damn That River. Those tunes that I liked as well. They fit right in just a different part of my uh, rock and roll arsenal. 
Now, here's what really changed for me, and here's where it did affect me. So I never bailed on those bands that were already solidified for me, the Teslas, the Dawkins, etc. But where it did affect me is that I quit looking for new oh, hard rock sure. bands. And so I missed a ton of shit that came out in 1991, 92, 93, 94 that because of the podcast, I get to discover now, and I'm like, how the fuck did I miss this one? <laughs> you know, poor, uh, poor production, cheap record labels, and they weren't anywhere to be found. Uh, also, no MTV still mattered at this point, so it wasn't like you're going to get see any of this stuff. Now, I will say this. It did kind of irritate me when like, I'd see some of these regular rotated kind of grungy bands appear on Headbangers Ball. I thought that was like... This is not the place. I felt the same way in the '80s when they'd play like Youth Gone Wild or Bon Jovi. You know, it's like, or or even more uh, Guns N' Roses. It's like you already play these all the time. This this late night weekend slot is supposed to be two hours dedicated to to not that, not what you yeah. already do. Right. Uh, I wonder if UMTV raps was that way. I just wasn't into rap that much. But who knows. <laughs> Well, let me touch on a comment you made earlier in our conversation, just because I, I was thinking about it. So th there aren't songs that take you back to certain, like, just random moments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that, that's the basis of my show, really. I well, mean... It, it just surprised me that you, you mocked me for uh, uh, hating Ted Nugent fans and thinking about it when the song played. I, I just mock you personally because it's fun. I mean, Ted Nugent's really got nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's just fun, man. Uh, okay, well, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big boy. I can take it, uh, apparently. Uh, well, here's your moment, Stephen, the, the, the moment you've been waiting for. And, and, and uh, the, 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 everybody's kind of dialing up the volume right now. Did grunge kill hair metal? Well, you know what? After listening to your facelift episode with our friend Chris Sinzak, Chris really nailed it on the head. And I'm going to sort of paraphrase what he said because I, I almost 100% agree with him. The bottom line is, yes, grunge did kill hair metal, but here's how that happened. It was really the industry the record labels and the promotions people are the ones that killed hair metal, so to speak. If you go back and you look at history, and uh, I was somewhat intertwined with record labels at that point in history in the early to mid-90s, I had dinner with people who have much higher pay grades than myself, and they spent promotion money not on finding that next hair band, not on promoting that next hair band. And I think you and I both know that the majority of people will turn to what they are spoon fed through media, a lot of them. And that's not just on that point. Uh to an extent, I mean, there are far more acts that don't succeed. It's not even close. The ones that do connect and click with people. Mm -hmm. So it isn't as simple as like, oh, this is what we're listening to now? Great. I love Vamp. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? There's just too many bands that, that that doesn't work with, even with grunge. Anyway, carry on. 
No, you're 100% right. I mean, I can uh, give you a list of bands that record companies spent a pretty penny on that never connected with people for whatever reason. So you're 100% correct in that. Couldn't the reason be that it's just not as good? Uh, Sure, it could. Uh, I would say most cases, that's it. You know what I mean? Uh, (laughs) You know, that's such a weird thing, though, because to me music in general i mean you hear stuff all the day all the time that is huge that a ton of people love that you're you and i are just going (laughs) man this is absolute shit how does anybody like this and vice versa there's stuff that that we hear that we're like oh my god this is the best song ever and somebody that's like your your wife or your friend or whoever is like ah that sucks you know so it's it's really I don't know, subjectional, I guess. That's to an extent. That's the be- yeah, that's the beauty of music. I mean, one man's shit is another man's awesomeness. So But can't somebody like something and also admit that it's not as good? Like, uh I've given up the ghost that Kiss is actually better than a lot of the bands that I don't like as much. I can deal with that. I can move on from that. I don't begrudge anybody for liking anything. I- I've said this before. With one exception, Beyonce. You can spend your money and do what you want. To me, that's subjective, and there's no accounting for taste. But I don't think it's outside the realms to say that a band like Rat is a far superior band than uh, Poison. And you might like Poison a lot more. Honestly, there's times when I'm probably in the mood for Poison more than Rat. But I'm just saying, as as a band, Rat's a better band. It's just just an example of what I'm talking about. To me, when I hear Chris Cornell write lyrics, he's on a different plane than almost every one of those hair metal bands. I, I don't disagree with you, but I would argue the fact and play devil's advocate and say, okay, well, what is the definition of better? Better musicians, better guitar player, better songwriter. What is the definition of a better artist or better band? than another artist or, or band. A lot of things can factor into that, but uh, to me, better is better, man. I mean, the easy the easy way out is to, to uh, put a number with it and say, okay, well, this band is clearly the bigger, the better band because they sold more albums mm. or or they got more streaming downloads or whatever the case is. Yeah, I never I, I never buy into that. Right, uh, and me neither. I think better is in the eyes or the ears, rather, of the person that that's judging. Because yeah, what you just said about rat and poison, I'm on board with that. I love rat much more than I love poison, and I think they're a better band. But somewhere out there, there's somebody that will live and die by Brett Michaels and Poison, and there's no way in hell you're going to convince that person <laughs> that Rat's a better band. So, I, I mean, it is what it is. That's the, I've always said there's no right and wrong within music. Except for uh, Beyonce. <laughs> somebody likes her. Oh, no, there, there's plenty of people that like her, but not. Uh, <laughs> um, but to me, and, and again, admittedly, I'm not explaining this very well, Stephen, and I, I'm going to leave it with this because uh, it is your time. It's not about what you personally like or what you enjoy, because to me, th- we should all be allowed to make that judgment on our own and 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 not be criticized for that. And, and I'm, that's never really where I've gone with that. It's I'm literally, like I said, the Beatles are better than Kiss. Okay, I, I just think they are. 
And I will never listen to the Beatles anywhere close to as much as I'll listen to Kiss or have listened to Kiss. And that doesn't mean that that like I can't it be objective. It, that's my problem is that too many times, and that's where Perfectly Rated comes from, is that the, the hardcore fan, the guys like you and I especially, we get so latched on to what we personally like that we can't be objective with what we're actually listening to. Back to you, Stephen Michael. Finish your point on on you were you were kind of finishing up on how uh, grunge did cure, cure kill hair metal, but it was largely because of uh, uh, everybody just being sheep and running off a cliff. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically <laughs> said I basically said what I needed to say there. The record companies quit looking for new metal bands to sign and started looking for alternative and grunge bands to sign and that's where they spent all their money and yeah. subsequently uh mtv and the radio stations all followed suit so when cool. you've got record companies radio stations and uh television all on the side of the new thing which is grunge or or alternative or whatever you want to call it at the time then that's going to influence a large part of the population and that's yeah. what it did that part is i don't think arguable at all yeah like the more eyes you can put on something is going to help it that kind of thing but let me ask you this i mean warrant cherry pie got a real heavy push just ahead of grunge. Let's say it it, it came out the same time because it's not that far apart. But this, they released the same day. Warrant Cherry Pie gets gets the same push it did back then, and at the same time Nirvana comes out. And Nirvana, you cannot you cannot tell me that that Nevermind had the promotion budget that Cherry Pie did. Are we still having this conversation? I mean, it, I don't think it. I don't think it did at the beginning because Cherry Pie was on the cusp and coming off a successful album. That's my point. And, well, correct, but here's In the other thing. words, Nirvana had to prove itself a little bit before it would get that push, before other bands would get the same push. I think that there were a lot of things probably happening behind the scenes that you and I didn't see before it actually took off. I think that there were probably... Well, I think there were probably a couple of people at the label that were like, this shit is awesome. Uh, we're going to push this thing or we believe in this, whatever you want to say. And, you know, there, it, it only takes a few yeah. uh, believers within a record company to push it without spending a dime, you know? If there's a conspiracy, I do think that as much as record companies made money off hair metal, they largely didn't like it. Yeah. Like as far as the music... Where I think maybe with because you hear stories of these grunge bands on their very first album, they're given free reign, and meanwhile, like on Motley Crue's fourth record, they're being forced to do something, you know, uh, even though they've already kind of established success. So there's there's something to that. Yeah, I think hair metal was uh, to coin a phrase, getting a little bit dead and bloated. Well, you've met <laughs> you've been in the industry. You, you've met a lot of hair metal musicians, and I'm not talking about Vince Neil and Tommy Lee. I'm talking about the guys that we know, all right? There is just something a little different about the way they approach music that is, to me, a lot more contrived than than, than music that kind of blows up and becomes the next big thing. Good point. It was uh, easy to get to look and, and do the hair metal thing. And I, by the way... I, 
again, I just I'm just trying to be objective. I love so much of what what came out of that scene. It'll always be you know a big part of my life, and I still listen to so much of that shit. It's just it's a good time music. I I like that, but the mentality of these people, I mean, it just it didn't click with uh uh I don't know a more realistic view. I guess unless it's David LaRoth, it doesn't really count to me. (laughs) Well, it was just a it was a different time though. I mean, the '80s were clearly different than the '90s, and there are a lot of things that go on in you know political fronts and things like that that Agreed. drive yeah that drive you know where some of these artists come from and so that was one factor that factors into it i think neither one of us can deny the fact that with 80s hard rock hair metal whatever you want to call it there were amazing musicians that came out of these bands whereas with grunge and alternative you almost didn't really necessarily have to be a great musician to start a band in your garage and put a band together and i and i and i mean that i don't mean that to be really derogatory but it's true i know exactly what you mean yeah let's get to side two shall we absolutely you flipping the cassette now did you uh did you ever have a walkman cassette i assume of course so you're you're out out for a stroll, or in my case, doing a paper out, and you've you've wrapped up side one, but there's like a minute and a half of tape. You got to pull out that pencil so you not waste that battery, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, fucking batteries are expensive when you're 15. They sure are. I uh, got uh, those uh, rechargeable ones for a while, but they weren't worth a shit either. Yeah, even oh, you you were back in the day. Oh man, early level rechargeable batteries, huh? Yeah, little uh, yellow batteries in this plastic thing that probably could burn down your house when you plug it into the wall. <laughs> That's super hot. I think yeah. I remember those. Did you get it at Radio Shack? Yeah, you had to get pot holders to take it <laughs> off the wall because they were so hot. Uh, why do you have a pair of tongs on the floor over there? Oh, that's my battery charger tongs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, shit. Man. Well, side two opens up with uh, a, a term I love to use when I refer to you or behind your back, creep. Absolutely. That encompasses me 100%. Good job. Take time with a wounded hand, cause it likes to heal. Take time with a wounded hand, cause it likes to steal. Take time with a wounded hand Cause it likes to heal I like to steal I'm half a man I used to be In terms of side two, yeah, this isn't the best song in the world to kick off side two. However, no, uh, you got to remember though, grunge agrees with Sonny Pooney. No, sequencing doesn't matter. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, wait, wait till you hear what's coming up with that. <laughs> Just a real quick note. This this album definitely seems to be fully embracing the sequencing in the era of CD. This is not an album sequenced with the idea that they gave a shit that you had to flip a tape or a turntable. You're listening. To, you press and play and listen till the end. Yeah, uh, and as I said before, I mean it. It is uh, that was their goal to try to put a complete you know, album together. Right. Uh, I don't love ballads, but the pre-chorus and the chorus are absolutely great in this song. It's a dark tune, but I gave, I, I like this song. I gave this song four boots. Wow. Uh, I personally would probably rate it lower if I was just going on a, do I want to hear it kind of thing. Yep. But it, it's one of those songs that I can really appreciate with, without, totally digging it if that makes sense um it's just a really good song they're, they're really and musically there's nothing of note here you know what i mean it, it, nothing's flying off the charts it's pretty basic chords and that kind of stuff if anything it's kind of a nod to the quality of the production and scott's singing um i uh i well before i get my rating did you happen to i stumbled across on amazon music the the expanded version of this and i listened to the demo of it and it actually it, it almost there's almost like this like naturalness that that just comes through and it's clearly a demo but I almost like it a little bit better but there is this weird bridge that isn't in the actual song you you can when you hear it you go I can see why they took it out but uh, I mean that was probably the producer's uh, move there but I also gave it for single doc martin cool we're in line. Yeah, we're pretty much uh, straight down the roll. There's not been a lot of disagreement. Uh, not not always the same rating but uh there hasn't been one song that one of us loved and the other one hated so well, let's hope we can change that here with Piece of Pie. For me, piece of pie. I love this rocker. It reminds me with a little bit of Allison Chains feel, and I like the course a lot. This one is high on my list. And honestly, when I went back to listen to this record, this wasn't a song title that jumped out at me. I couldn't place this song until I put the record on and listened to this song. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this tune. I really like this song. This one got five boots from me. Wow, five. Uh, staring me down. That is kind of a Lane Staley kind of field, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, the song's all right, but it's a skipper on most listens for me. If I'm, if if I'm, uh, if I'm, I'm already looking at like, well, I'm already at like, what was this track eight or nine or like that? I'm like, well, if I skip this one, I'll be closer to the next CD. Uh, the Wah solo to me is a bit lazy, and overall, this song just kind of feels like filler. So yeah, it's our first probably big disagreement. This one gets uh, only three uh, single Doc Martins. See, this is when I got a drink in my hand, I'm ready to rock and roll, and I'm the annoying drunk that's hanging all over Baco. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> oh, man. If only uh, th- those are the days. Uh, yeah, uh, I've never seen you drunk. Do you even drink anymore? I do drink a uh, bottle of wine on the weekends, but that's about it. Now, it, it, this is important. Uh, do you drink it out of the bottle, or do you actually pour it into a glass? 
No, I got a I got a really nice uh, what they call sippy cup that uh, my friend over at Potter and Hell gave me that said growing up rock uh, Stevens sippy cup. Nice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wine cooler, uh, you know, cooler glass thing. It's one of those ones that's kind of shaped like a stemless uh, wine glass, basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, anyway, uh, well, moving on to I think uh, a, a fairly notable song on the album, uh, "Plush." Plush is, uh, I, I really like the groove in Plush without being a ballad and still super radio friendly. The melody and the chorus are so good to me. Like, I absolutely love it. And this isn't a song for me that typically would be in my wheelhouse. But when I heard this tune, like I told you, I mean, I thought it was a hit straight out of the gate, and that was way before they even released it as a single. Wow. Yeah, this is the Pearl Jam song. Uh, this one rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. You know, like I had a buddy who hated the lyrics, but he pretty much hated everything about this band and and grunge in general. Um, I, I do, I do think the opening opening the song with the lyric and I feel was sort of the. Uh, Oh, the lazy man's approach to say, see how alternative I am? Uh, I'm just a douchebag. And the whole dogs begin to smell her. Does she smell alone? Ooh, that's that's so out there, man. All that said, fucking love this song. There's some really inventive guitar layering uh, uh, with the appreciated chords that, that goes on in this thing That that is just, it's, it's really... Just really inventive and creative. I just, I, I, again, Dean DeLeo doesn't probably get a lot of, I know at the time I think it was talked about more, but it was after like maybe a record or two from this. At the time, they were basically, from musicians and critics, just kind of panned as kind of a, a, a wannabe, like we're just going to try to copy these three grunge acts and stuff like that. I think we've kind of learned to realize there's a little more depth to them from that point, but uh, I don't know. I gave it, I gave it five. I gave it five boots as well. I think, uh, you know, really and truly, to me, the only comparison uh, on this song with, uh, I guess they were comparing him to Eddie Vedder, maybe Lane Staley a little bit, is really just in sort of that low 
tone register. Yeah, it's the, the delivery of, of the singing, you know. Yeah, well, and also you could easily see, especially this was like uh, Eddie Vedder's kind of grown as, as as a human being, but but like he became a bit of a douchebag too, and it, you could easily see him staring at the stage singing "Hurt I Feel." <laughs> you know, uh, supposedly the the title doesn't mean anything. Uh, it literally has no actual meaning, but so that that, that seems fitting. And uh, another story I came across, uh, I think this was from uh, Robert. He said that the some label reps stopped by. And and they wanted it to be the first single, but the band was like, no. Their 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 concern was that if this becomes a hit, we we want to be a band with a career. This could be a one hit wonder kind of deal. If, if this if this is the if you're going to lead with this, so they actually buried it on the second side in sequencing for that reason alone, supposedly. So I don't know. Well, and let me just say this: the record label, the band, whatever. Uh, I'm sure it was both, but. They did a really amazing job with releasing and picking the right singles for this record. Really fucking strong, man. In the in the sequence in, in the sequence that they released the singles was pretty much spot on and the singles that they picked spot on. So good. And they all got a lot of traction so like like I said like it was by the third or fourth single that I was like I th- I think I can. You know, it was still really hard for me. I felt like I had to. I was selling out a little bit when I bought this, but you know, I, something was cl- clearly driving me that way. I had the same literally, I literally had the same similar reaction. Like when I bought my first Poison CD, I was like, eh, you know, it's like, am I gonna do this? But you know, sometimes you just say fuck it. Well, you, you said you had no zeros. Any chance this next song changes that? Because it got one for me. Wet my bed. <laughs> well, no, basically because, like I said, I didn't know I could give zeros. But this one, here's my, here's you can my change notes. It. Change it, Stephen. Okay. Do it. P- perfect. It's totally got a zero boot. This has uh, the Dr. Scholl's pad that goes in the boot. Uh, so my, <laughs> my notes on and it this. it stinks. It stinks bad. It's never had any deodorant put on it. But here's my notes on this song. I put Y in capital letters with a big question mark. And then I put pointless. And then I had read, uh, which I'm sure you read too. This was the first song that they recorded in the studio. I did not with read that. what? It, it, this is actually the first song they recorded in the studio with um, with Brendan O'Brien. And if you listen to it, Brendan O'Brien walks in at the end of them recording this, and you hear the door open. He he walks in and he goes, "Well, what's next?" So. Uh, it, like if I was the producer and and this was the first thing I recorded, I'd be like, "Holy shit! What? No!" <laughs> and where's my cigarettes? Did you yeah. check the bathroom? She sleeps there sometimes. Your cigarette now is ge- not. I thought cigarettes were gender neutral, man. Uh, but yeah, to me, this this is the reason they got criticized. Every time you start to come around, they throw this thing in here on this record, and it's just like, this is why everybody thinks you're contrived in in bullshit. Because this is like, oh, look at this crazy. We- There's nothing redeeming about this. It's just, it's it's a waste. No, not not clever, and of course, no musical merit. So yeah. 
I, I wouldn't mean, even give could... it the goddamn Dr. Scholl liner. Nice one. <laughs> I mean, they could have taken this song or, uh, at a minute and 36 and that no memory at a minute and 20 and had a three-minute kick-ass song on this record. Or just made the uh, uh, record uh, 51 minutes and 37 seconds. So uh, it, it doesn't yeah. have to be... Uh, 12 songs. Anyway, uh, we can move on, though. Yes? You nothing else here? We got a couple of zeros here? Please, God, let's move on. Uh, Cracker Man! This is my other uh, metalhead or the meathead anthem. This is the other one. What do you got here, Stephen? Absolutely. So probably this one may be my favorite song on the record. I'm the meathead that loves this <laughs> tune. God damn it. This song, like I said. Now, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying any, that other song in this one or anything like that. I'm not saying everybody who listens to it is a meathead, but this is I, definitely the one that gets the meathead's fist in the crowd. I absolutely got it. I I get exactly what you're saying. But for me, this song is in 1991, or when did this record come out? 92. 92. So in 1992, I'm still searching for that gap to be bridged between metal and, and grunge, alternative, whatever you want to talk about. And this song is just a straight ahead rocker for me. I love the riff. I love the energy. I love one of the one of the best parts of this song for me personally is when that thing drops down and breaks down to like almost halftime that riff. Oh yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I man, that feels so good to me uh, as a former guitar player and just somebody that loves uh, fat riffs. I absolutely love it. So good. I love the uh, roll me, roll me, and then the yeah. megaphone, and then the megaphone response. I like that. Worry. Yeah, and then the lyrics. So uh, one of the lyrics, tripping as I'm thinking about a boy, his name was Sue. <laughs> uh, okay. We all get that reference, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, he's a he's a man. He's a man. Cracker man. Cracker man. He's a woman too. Back then, it wasn't as prevalent as it is these days. But that's interesting for sure. Yeah, I love this song. Five boots for me on this one. Uh, well, Cracker Man was supposedly a homeless person that Scott would give bread to, uh, like he was some kind of park pigeon or something. Like bloop bloop bloop, throw it at him, but. Uh, uh, so maybe Cracker Man like Johnny Cash, so that's why he's a boy named Sue. But uh, yeah, this is a uh, man. This is a killer, killer track, man. It is almost like the most seamless blend of melody and music on the album. It just it's so natural. There isn't one part of it that that doesn't seem like that's exactly where you're supposed to go with this. And uh, it, it, it's it's just smooth. And it's a nice, quick little hitter. Boom, and it has that drop D uh, riff in there for you, Robert Christigo. Yeah, I, I gave it five boots, too. Yeah, awesome. The album ends with uh, Where the River Goes. I 
I'll just say this on this quickly. The song supposedly goes back to 1982 when, uh, according to Robert, uh, him and Dean apparently began their musical incest going all the way back that far. Uh, all I have to say on this is they should just close the album with uh, Cracker Man. I gave it three. <laughs> Fair enough. Here are my notes on this tune. Way too fucking long. Eight <laughs> minutes and 25 seconds. I like the riff in this tune, but... This song would be so much better if it was three or four minutes long. I mean, it's just... I didn't listen to the whole thing today. Isn't like the last half of it just like kind of garbage? It's not. It really... That's the point of this. It it doesn't... They do an eight-minute song, but if you cut it in three minutes and cut out a verse or a course or a couple verses or a course, you don't lose anything. I don't think they add anything to this song by doing eight minutes and 25 seconds. I don't, I don't okay. get it. This is something where I would have expected Brendan O'Brien to be like, yeah, that's great, guys. So we're going to scrap this and scrap that and cut this back, and now you got a good feasible song. I wonder how much of that had to do with trying to maximize the amount of minutes on a CD. Like, how much production like was done with that mind thought at the time? Because yeah, that was definitely happening, where they were making the albums longer than they probably would. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that that's not the case. I, I would hope not, but you're you're right. I mean, you're you're definitely right because I think that type of thing did happen, but. I, you know, there's a lot of records out today uh, by what I would consider like pop metal bands or pop hard rock bands where they have a five or six minute song and several of them on a record. And I'm just like, I, I think it's because they don't pay a producer to do the job. They're, mm. do, they're producing it themselves or Fair something. Enough. And it's like, you don't need for a pop hard rock tune you don't you don't need more than three three and a half minutes in in my opinion unless it's some sort of epic thing that has like a acoustic intro and an orchestrated part or something like that you know so steven michael has not only a three chord minimum to his rock and roll but a three and a half minute maximum that's all that i can focus on (laughs) yes that is correct sir well, I always give the final thoughts on the album uh, to uh, the final words on it anyway to to my esteemed guests. So I'll I'll knock mine out here and turn it over to you, Stephen. Um, as much as this CD got regular spins for me, I got to tell you, man, I wasn't that compelled to rush out and get Purple when it came out. And I loved this album by the time that came out. And I fucking loved Vaseline. I sh- but there was just something still with him that just didn't connect with me. Um, for some reason... I just, they couldn't be my band. I just, one of those, like, we, we both have bands that, like, when they release a record, we don't even care if it's going to be good or bad. We just go get it on release day. You know what I mean? And they just, they, they knocked it out of the park, and they open up with a great lead single, and I still just didn't feel like it. To me, that, that says something about, like, how I felt about the band at the time, anyway. Um, and their first two records, I absolutely love them both. I actually think Purple's better than this one, but man, it's I think they're both pretty killer. I do think the name sucks, but even going back, there is a little part of me that when I listened to this, like just today, it was like there's a bit, it almost still kind of feels like a guilty pleasure. Like I just can't let go of that part of me that uh, just felt like a sellout for even liking it a little bit. But uh, with that, like I said, I like Purple more than this one. What do you got here? What are your closing thoughts here, Steven? This 
record for me. I loved it from the get-go. I went and got it from the get-go. But what you just said about this band 100% resonates with me because I get exactly what you're saying, and I kind of feel the exact same way. I didn't rush out and get Purple. I didn't rush out and get uh, the Tiny... tiny yeah, Tiny Music, uh, that record. But still, I own a lot of Stone Temple Pilot records. And to me, they consistently put decent music on each CD. Maybe the whole record as a whole isn't uh, complete, but there's always something that I really like on each, re- each of the Stone Temple Pilot records that they've put out. So I own a ton of it. I have a ton of it in my library, but core for me, I don't know whether it's a sentimental thing, but it's just, it's probably my favorite Stone Temple Pilot record. I mean, it's just, it's complete. I love it a lot. Uh, I like purple. I like tiny music. Tiny music had to grow on me, um, but core for me is what, what bought it home. So yeah, that's it. I love it. Now Rolling Stone, of course, had this at number 11. I slid it down just a bit. Uh, this one drops to 13 for on my personal list. Where did you uh, rank this one? This one fell at number two for me. Wow, nice. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was it coming off of the 80s, coming off of hard rock and metal, it was probably one of the closest records in that new era uh, that was, you know, rooted firmly in hard rock and metal. Thank you for coming on the program today, Stephen. I'm glad that you get to be part of this series. You were one of my, uh, you know, the short list of people that I wanted to try to get on here if they were all at all interested. I, I, I think when I first talked to you, I was a little leery because I was like, well, you, I, 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 is Pooney not at all grunge guy? I thought one of you guys was just like, no grunge. Pooney is less of a grunge person than me, but neither one of us are huge grunge people. But then again, again, it's what what you're calling grunge. Sure. Uh, and yeah, Pooney is definitely a lot less uh, tolerant of the grunge era. Well, let's talk about growing up rock. What do you got going on there, and how can people check you out? Wherever you listen to this podcast, you can listen to Growing Up Rock. Uh, we release every Sunday morning, so it's there for your work week. And, you know, it's a hard rock and metal podcast. Uh, any guitar-driven rock and roll, we've uh, even touched on some classic 70s stuff but we do either themed episodes or we do interview episodes mostly themed episodes but we just uh we just did a interview with um jeff scott soto it turned out to be a real good interview because if you know our show and you know hollywood pooney you know how big of a jeff scott soto fan he is so it was a thrill for me to get to hear sunny uh, interview and talk uh, to Jeff. So, Absolutely, I, I, and, and I love Jeff Scott Soto as a singer. Yeah, I mean he's a really good singer, really versatile, and he had some great stories, and he's great to talk to. So perfectly it was rated, well, yeah, definitely. And it was uh, it was fun for both of us. So uh, that's good, and uh, yeah, we'll have some uh, some tribute stuff uh, coming up at the end of the year for uh, Eddie Van Halen because. 
uh, Edward and Van Halen for me was what Kiss is to a lot of our fellow podcasters. It was my number one, and it's what I grew up on, so it's a big deal for me. Uh, I'm going to do what what I do best, which is uh, find some way and fun way to pay tribute to it all, because it, it, there's a lot of it. Right on. I look forward to that. And yeah, the, the Growing Up Rock podcast, for those, uh, I got to believe most people listening to this show, unless they're tuning in just for the grunge stuff, are familiar with, with yours and mine history. We both were kind of working with Decibel Geek as, as writers when we first met. Um, your podcast started out not too long after ours. So we've kind of been kind of kindred spirits and uh, we've had a lot of fun at each other's expense over the years. So yeah, I mean, we're, I don't know, you're basically, we're, we're like podcast family, I guess, in a, in a certain way. So uh, I really enjoyed having you on i I, i've I've enjoyed this whole experience getting just a wide variety of different ages and backgrounds of white men to talk about music (laughs) (laughs) that's it's it's only because only white men love crunch music (laughs) oh my god i think one of my favorite uh one of my favorite like bits that i've ever done i did it in 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 an article i've written and then of course we did one of the podcasts where we talked about the how diverse like certain crowds are or something like that i just you know it's like we got old white people young white people i don't know for whatever reason i just think that's super funny um but as always uh thank you again for coming on the show steven it's always fun to talk to you whatever you know what never mind best to Jen and uh, how are the cats doing? Cats are awesome. They're running around here somewhere. I got to shut them out of here. Otherwise, they'd be walking all over my keyboard. Uh, you probably Just for me, you should have let that happen. I, know, I, I thought about it. <laughs> it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 